I'd like to say good morning to each of you here today. If you consider yourself a visitor, we are especially thankful that you are with us. You could have been a number of places, but you have chosen to be with us today, and we, we certainly appreciate that. If you would, stick around at the conclusion of service and allow us an opportunity to, uh, to meet you and get to know you a little bit better. <clears throat> today, America celebrates its freedom by commemorating the July 4, 1776 adoption of the Declaration of Independence, which, of course, as we know, declared our independence from Great Britain. <clears throat> and so today, there will be many family gatherings, no doubt, Fireworks later here in Mesquite, hopefully. Uh, maybe some hot dogs, some picnics, and those kinds of things. <clears throat> and so we think about, typically, uh, all of that comes to mind whenever we, we typically think about July 4th. <clears throat> Something that should be on our minds, as we have heard this morning uh, by several of the brethren, uh, and hopefully what I will expound upon uh, this morning is that of freedom. And so the desire to be free is one of the strongest desires in human nature. Some have sought for freedom and some have fought hard for it. We might think about the life of Frederick Douglass or, or others might come to mind. Others have made long speeches about freedom. We might remember Patrick Henry's famous speech in, in part, uh, which he says, Give me liberty or give me death. People have sung inspiring songs about it, and we've sung a few of those this morning. Uh, so, freedom is a subject that abounds in our culture. Uh, freedom has also been used as a subject of many movies, many stories, uh, and these stories are often exciting and even captivating. Stories that relate a, a heroic deliverance from tyranny or exploitation or oppression or stories of an escape from a seemingly inescapable situation. And the Bible is filled with such stories. The Bible has a great many references to freedom, but they are not primarily and sometimes not at all concerned with the political or the civil or the social freedoms that we might normally associate uh, with our great holiday today. In fact, the concepts that they convey are often counterintuitive to human reason for particularly in the New Testament, they are presenting the paradox of people who are apparently politically or personally free already uh, or being in bondage while the freedom that God wants to give his people is spoken of as a form of slavery. Outside of Christ, our human condition means that we are enslaved in our natural state and that our only deliverance from that bondage is to become slaves to Christ. And so we read in Scripture, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms, Paul writes, because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Paul says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? 
The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We read of this in Romans chapter 6 in verses 17 through 22. So what we read here, this is worlds away from the idea of freedom uh, as something to which we have a right. We hear this so often in our, in our culture, every day. I hear it all the time. I have a right to do this. I have a right to do that. And so some people think of freedom as the right to do whatever they desire, whenever they desire, with no one telling them what to do. One such person was the prodigal son from the book of Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 24. We won't take the time to read that this morning, but that is the person that comes to mind when I think about and hear about this kind of freedom. You might recall that he asks his father to give him his share of the inheritance to which he was given. And then he leaves his father's house, he goes to a far country, so that he could do what? Be free. Be free from uh, the bondage of, of his family life, uh, to be free to live without any interference or without constraints whatsoever. But was he really free? I'm sure he thought he was for a while, spending that money. I'm sure he had several friends there for a while to help him spend that money. But after he had squandered everything... How did he end up with the pigs, with the swine, the lowest, most degrading end that we could possibly think of? And he was so hungry that he would not even mind eating the horrible slop that he was feeding the pigs. So I don't, I don't think any of us would like this kind of freedom. I mean, a ship without a rudder is free, and a train without tracks is free. Both are free to travel wherever they can go, but... Both cannot travel in the direction they really need to go, and they will surely end up in a terrible wreck. So therefore, freedom is not the right to do what we desire, but rather the desire to do what is right. This is the freedom that we should be seeking, brethren, and we can have this freedom through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to invite your attention to the main passage of Scripture this morning in the book of John. Let me invite your attention there to the book of John, chapter number 8. I want to read several verses here, beginning in verse number 31, and I want to read down to verse number 44 in the book of John, chapter number 8. Here Jesus is speaking in John, chapter 8, and verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word... Then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin, and the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. 
ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication, we have one father, even God. Jesus saith, uh, said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? And Jesus says in verse 44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So I want to consider for a few moments what Jesus says here in the book of John. Here in this passage, there were actually a couple of groups of people. There were many people, of course, listening to Jesus. But one of the groups here were Jews that had believed on him, and he addresses them straight away. And so according to verse 30, the words that Jesus had spoken earlier, declaring that he is the light of the world, had caused them to put their trust in him. And so these Jews who believed in Jesus were mainly from outside Judea. They were part of a large crowd who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. But as Jesus spoke to the crowds during that feast, there was another group among them, another group of Jews who were very hostile toward Jesus. And they were actually looking for an opportunity to accuse him, to arrest him, and then to murder him. And this group, of course, was the Pharisees. They had rejected Jesus because he had spoken so boldly against their sins and because they had judged him to be a Sabbath breaker and a blasphemer. And so in the first two verses of this passage, Jesus speaks to the first group, the believing Jews, encouraging them to continue in his word in order to be his true disciples. If they did this, knowing the truth, the truth would make them free. But in verse 33, the Pharisees who were listening to all that Jesus said, they challenged him for implying that they were in need of freedom. And so Jesus made this distinction very clear when he imparted his radical truth to the Jewish leaders of the day. And so we see that here in John chapter 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So, first of all, Jesus says there is a point where you are in need of freedom. Humanity then is enslaved in some way. And so I just draw your attention to verses 31 through 36, right here in the middle of our reading in John chapter 8, where this concept comes to the forefront. Jesus says in verse 31, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So his words presuppose, they they assume a slavery, a a bondage, a captivity. Um, And and these hearers are are not understanding that. Um, They they reply, we're the offspring of Abraham. We're Jews by descent. Uh, They go so far as to argue we've never been enslaved. And so, of course, they object to Jesus' characterization of them. How is it that you say you will become free, they ask. And so Jesus answers in verse 34, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to that sin. So the slavery he's talking about is a slavery or a captivity or a bondage to sin. And then in verse 36, he says that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So, humanity enslaved. 
Let us see here in this passage of Scripture this contrast between slavery and freedom. And really, that's just one of the the series of contrasts that we read here in this passage of Scripture. There's a contrast here from darkness and light in verse number 12. Uh, There's a contrast between those who are from below and those who are from above in verse 23. Jesus, who is not of this world, and those who are of this world. There's a contrast between fathers. We can see all of that. Jesus said that God is his father, but he tells his opponents here that they are of their father, the devil. A contrast between Jesus, who is God, and those who are not of God, and so do not hear God's word, between those who do not know God in Jesus, who who do not know God at all. So slavery, those who are slaves, versus the Son, the only begotten Son of God, who is free, is just one of those contrasts. So what this teaches in in John chapter 8, I believe, is that slavery is one of several powerful metaphors to consider that Jesus is teaching here. And it's used in Scripture uh, to describe the spiritual condition of unbelieving, sinful human beings to those who are outside of God's grace in Christ. And so freedom, Jesus tells them, is not something that they can just claim as a, a part of their inheritance or as a, quote, right Uh, as an Israelite, children of Abraham. Rather, this freedom that Jesus is speaking about is something that he grants, the Son of God gives, completely, or it's his to withhold. And so as Paul would write in Romans 6 and 23, the only thing we humans can really claim as our right is death. Whereas the free gift of God, as Paul writes, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, yes, it is appropriate to celebrate the anniversary of the founding of our free country with its constitutionally defined Bill of Rights and all the freedoms that we enjoy here that many people, as we know, around the world do not enjoy. But no amount of political or religious or personal freedom in the society of mankind can bring us the freedom that we most need. The God-defined and the grace-granted freedom from the law of sin and death, Romans chapter 8 and verse 2. So let us principally rejoice in that which makes us free indeed. So, what exactly is this freedom? Is this liberty? And so for for us, for me especially, this is a freedom to draw closer to God, our Heavenly Father. And so people have been searching for this freedom for thousands of years. The quest for freedom is a theme found throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Just three chapters into the story of God's creation, humanity gives up its freedom by choosing to rebel against God. And so from that time forward, the perfect freedom that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden was gone, and the long-term effects were both physical and spiritual. The Old Testament of the Bible records how God's people lost their physical freedom time and time again as various empires overtook them. And most notably, we might recall the Egyptian bondage that we read about in the book of Exodus. The loss of physical freedom was often tied to spiritual disobedience, like worshiping false gods. But time and again, the one true God forgave his people and rescued them. So when God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he was foreshadowing the arrival of Jesus Christ, who came to free humanity from sin, the spiritual slavery that leads to death. So brethren, many today, uh, many people are living in that spiritual slavery without realizing it. They think they're free. They think they're free to come and go and do as they so desire, uh, but really they are tied up into that spiritual slavery without realizing it. 
They chase false gods of money, success, personal comfort, romantic love, you name it, only to realize they still have an emptiness that cannot be filled by anything else. So, when Jesus began his short period of ministry on the earth, he announced radically that he was the one for whom God's people had been waiting. He did this by reading a particular passage from the book of Isaiah, a passage his listeners knew was referring to the Messiah or the Savior of the world. And we'll flip over to the book of Luke chapter 4, and we'll see just exactly what Jesus was reading there. The book of Luke chapter number 4, in verses 17 through 21, this is what Jesus reads to them in the synagogue. Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And so when we consider what Jesus is reading here, he's reading about deliverance and healing, about recovery, about a release, about freedom. And he says that, repeatedly here. And so we could go through several uh, variations of these uh, scriptures here. The Amplified Version, uh, the English Standard Version, they all say it a little differently, but again, the idea is the same, this idea of freedom. There's something that God's people had never experienced before until Jesus. And so the story of Jesus Christ as it comes to life in his followers is a story of freedom, to be sure. But a freedom constrained by the cross and deeply at odds with individualistic notions of liberty. And so consider what Jesus says about the freedom that he offers. Back in the book of John, chapter number 8, in verses 31 and 32, we can read there, Jesus saith unto them, and we've read that, right? This is who I am, this is what I've come to do. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Verses 34 to 36. And so by this, Jesus means that a free person will no longer be a slave or a bondservant to sin. So part of being freed from sin means that we will intentionally seek to live a righteous, holy life. So for the next few minutes, I want to expound upon a a few main points here about exactly what Jesus is talking about. What does he mean? Freedom from what? Freedom for what? And so first, I want to talk about the bondage of sin, talking about captivity. For something or someone to be liberated, it must first have to be bound or imprisoned. The very definition of a captive is one who is confined. That's exactly what we were. That's exactly what I was before I became a Christian. 
You and I both were prisoners held under the bondage of sin, swayed by sin. We were held captive by the impulses of sin. We were bound to the instincts of sin. We had no power to overcome that influence. Sin was our ruler, and it held us captive. In our days of living before Jesus, whatever sin wanted, that's what sin got. Right? Wake up in the morning, sin. Go, to, go throughout our daily lives, sin, sin, sin. This does not necessarily mean that you are out living necessarily a wild lifestyle, although it could. It simply means that the primary authority in your life was your sinful nature. It was what was in control of me and in control of you before Jesus. And so in Romans chapter 6, Paul refers to sin as a master or a controller, leading us around. However, when we were born again in the watery grave of baptism, something very beautiful happens. God gave us a new nature and more importantly filled us with his Holy Spirit. So now we're no longer under the control, or shouldn't be, under the control of that sin. We've been set free. Paul sums this truth in the book of 2 Corinthians, and I want to invite your attention there. In the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter number 3, this is what the Apostle Paul says in summary of that. 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, in the 17th verse. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And so because the Holy Spirit lives in you and lives in me, we are free. So what is this slavery? What what does all of this entail? And so first of all, as we've seen, it's a slavery to sin. And in John 8 and 34, we see that the one who practices sin is a slave to sin. We're bound to it. And Jesus has already mentioned sin a couple of other times in the passage. Earlier in, in John 8 verse 21, he says, I'm going away and you will seek me. And you will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus says you will die in your sin. And there the sin is singular. He's thinking of one particular sin, the the root, if you will. He's speaking here to people who do not believe in him. So here we see the root of all sins. The root sin itself is the sin of unbelief. And Jesus says if you die in your sin, in this sin of unbelief, you're going to die. You're going to face that eternal death, if you continue in that sin. And so then in verse 24, he says something similar. I told you that you would die in your sins. So the fruit of unbelief is seen in this life of sin, this lifestyle, this unending lifestyle of sin, practicing sin. I think one of the most vivid illustrations of this is found in the Old Testament. At some point, you might turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 107, read verses 10 through 12. Read that passage of Scripture sometime. It describes a group of, uh, really just a group of people who cry out to the Lord for release. And God does rescue them. But the condition out of which they cry is a condition of slavery. The text says, Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. So they had rebelled against the words of the Most High. They, They spurned the counsel of the Most High. So we bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. And it's a very vivid illustration. They are in darkness and in the shadow of death. And so here here are people who are locked up in a dungeon. Yes, it's a a metaphorical dungeon, but they're, they're locked up. They're imprisoned. They're not free. And so now you have to think that prisoners, slaves who were imprisoned in the ancient world, they didn't live in a prison like our, our modern prison systems, certainly not here in the United States. It was a very different form 
of prison. They didn't live in in something like a comfortable setting where they had three square meals a day and and climate control and a television and, and on some of the creature comforts that we really wouldn't normally associate with prisoners. So they were confined, they were restricted, perhaps shackled with iron, iron shackles on their hands or on their feet, just immovable. They weren't able to be free in the sense that we understand it. And that's the condition that the psalmist is drawing up here. Prisoners in affliction, prisoners in irons, bowed down with hard labor, with none to help. It's a vivid description that the scriptures use often for sin. What the Bible says is that sin is a slave labor. As the book of Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 15, the way of transgressors is hard. And some of you know that this morning. Some of us might remember that way before we became Christians. And so I just wonder if there is someone here this morning. What is it that binds you? What is it that fetters you? Where do you feel constricted? Where do you feel confined? Where do you feel stuck in your life? Maybe, maybe you feel captivated by anger or fear. Maybe you are imprisoned in, in pride. Maybe you find yourself in a dungeon of discouragement or despair. Maybe you find yourself shackled with, with chains of lust or unruly desire. Or, or maybe you're in the bonds of an addiction. It's a slavery to sin. You've tried to help yourself, you've tried to set yourself free, you've made resolutions and vows never to do something again, and yet you go right back to it. What is that? That's a bondage. That's a slavery. That's a captivity. We might remember the old Charles Dickens novel, A Christmas Carol, and we might be thinking of Jacob Marley, who, who, if you remember, Jacob Marley, who visited Ebenezer Scrooge in the story. And what is he carrying around his body? These huge chains covered in them. The chains that he wore were forged link by link by his own malice and his own greed. And some of us are carrying around chains just like that. We're chained by our own sins, slaves to sin. Jesus said in John 8, 34, he who practices sin is a slave to it. That's the slavery we would be in without Jesus. That's the slavery that's true of the entire human race until we are set free by Jesus Christ. That slavery leads to something else, brethren. It leads to death. Jesus says, if you don't believe in me, you will die in your sins. Sin always leads to death. We're reminded of that by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, chapter number 6, in verse 23, where he writes, the wages of sin is death. In Ezekiel, chapter 18, in verse number 20, Ezekiel writes in part, the soul that sins, it shall die. A guaranteed death. James, the first chapter, talks about this progression of temptation. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown or finished, as the King James Version writes, brings forth what? Death. Sin always leads to death, brothers and sisters. And death in Scripture is not only physical death, it includes that, of course... But it's also spiritual death, a separation from God. And you might be thinking of Romans chapter 8, and I would encourage you to read, especially the the very few verses, the very end of Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's very true. But Scripture teaches that sin can separate us from God. 
The Bible assures us that we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And it's ultimately the second death. It's an eternal death. It's a death that separates us from God in the eternity of hell. And so that's the death that never ends. When Jesus says you will die in your sins, that's what he's speaking about. He's speaking of a finality in their separation from God, their alienation from God. And that is our condition apart from Jesus. Apart from Christ, our sins, they lead to death. And that death is a final separation from God in an everlasting punishment. So that's a frightful reality to consider. But it means, brethren, that the stakes are really high. So will we be set free or not? Will we turn to Jesus, the only one who can set us free? Another point I'd like to make is that Jesus can set us free from the penalty of sin. We're talking about our eternity. Again, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says in part, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So Scripture teaches that outside of Christ, we all had an eternal death sentence. We were all on death row. You may not have understood it. We may not have probably grasped it at the time. Many people don't. When they think they're free, they think they're free. But that is where we were. Unfortunately, today many people still do not grasp that concept. Because of our sin, you and I were on a path to be eternally separated from the very presence of God. This was the eternal penalty or liability of our sin. Thankfully, the story does not end there. Paul states here in Romans 6 and 23 that the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus sets us free, he takes away our death sentence. The penalty that that I deserved has been removed. The penalty that you deserved has been removed, and now we have eternal life. And so he literally shifts our eternal destination. And it reminds me of what Paul writes to the church at Colossae. In the book of Colossians, chapter 1, in verse number 13, who Jesus hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Jesus can do that. And so today we can rejoice because if you have Christ, then you have eternal life. Where in Scripture can we turn to find such a confirmation? 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. 1 John the 5th chapter and the 13th verse. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And so as we read in Romans chapter 8 in the first four verses, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus, through Him, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemns sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. So whenever we see that word, therefore, especially there in Romans 8, it always points us back to something that that a writer has been writing about previously. But it also points us forward, an expectation, an anticipation of something that the writer is going to say. Condemnation is a concept that the Apostle Paul uses throughout the entire letter of Romans. 
Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. In this verse, Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. What is Paul saying? Condemnation. Romans chapter 2 and verse 12. Paul says, For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. The Apostle Paul writes here that all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law, and yet all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Condemnation. What about those who receive the law? Paul says they'll be judged by it. Condemnation. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Brethren, that's all of us. That's every human being. Paul's writing there of condemnation. Romans chapter 4 stresses that we cannot gain forgiveness of sin or or this freedom, uh, this freedom from slavery of sin through our own efforts. Again, condemnation. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Again, condemnation. And we read Romans 6 and 23, for the wages of sin is death. Condemnation. And so then after all of this this talk of condemnation repeatedly, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, in verse number 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Nobody wants to be condemned. People on death row don't want to be there. Nobody likes to face the penalty for their wrongdoing. And so in Romans chapter 8 and and verses 5 through 9, we read there about those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, that that repeated uh, desire of sin. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. So the sinful mind is definitely hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And so those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, I, however, were not controlled by that sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in us. And so if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. And so when Jesus proclaimed himself to be the fulfillment of God's promise to send someone who would bring this freedom He said that he came to proclaim this good news. And so Paul also shares that good news in Romans chapter 8 in the first two verses. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word condemnation in the original language refers to someone who has been judged guilty. Someone who is liable to the penalty of that crime. And so brethren, at one point we were guilty. And we deserved the death, past tense, of that penalty. But for those who have trusted in Jesus, who, who have obeyed him in baptism, there no longer is a guilty verdict on us or a death sentence for us. <clears throat> and so we read in Romans chapter 5 in the first two verses, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God our, uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul tells us what the law was unable to do that God himself has done by sending his son. Paul says that Jesus came as God in likeness of sinful man. He was fully God and fully man, God in the flesh, and he, of course, he totally identified with our condition. 
Jesus became a genuine human being, a real-life, breathing human being. And he became our sin offering, a sacrifice given on our behalf. And that means that Jesus willingly took upon himself the penalty for human sin on the cross. And so when Jesus went to the cross, sin was judged and condemned there. Jesus didn't deserve to die, as we heard this morning, but he took the consequences of that sin upon himself, on our behalf, for us. And he did it so that the righteous requirement of the law could be met. And according to Scripture, because of Jesus' sinlessness, our condemnation is transferred to him, and his righteousness is transferred to us. We read of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Another point that I want to make is that Jesus has freed us from this enslavement of sin, this this deeply rooted sin. There's something that Jesus says in John 8, in verses 32 to the end of that reading in verse 44, that I want to draw your attention to here. John 8, 32, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And then jump down here. To verse number 37. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. What is he talking about here? He's talking about their father being the devil. In verses 32 down through the end of that passage, I believe Jesus is bringing this to light. He says, if you abide in my word, if you continue in my word then you're my disciples. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And of course, they object. They say, well, no, we, how are you going to set us free? We're the children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone, which, of course, as we know historically, is inaccurate. Jesus says, if you practice sin, you're a slave to sin. And then in verse 38, Jesus says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And at this point, they're still thinking, well, Abraham's my father. Jesus is the bad guy here to them. And in their minds, Jesus is the enemy. They don't yet perceive what Jesus is actually saying. But look at what Jesus says in verse number 39. If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. They answer, well, still, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works of Abraham. But you seek to kill me. He says, I speak the truth. You seek to kill me. Why is it that you're seeking to do this? You're doing the works your father did. And again, they don't understand. So in verse 41, uh, the second half of that verse, they say we're not born of this sexual immorality. We're not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And of course, that's probably a slur towards Jesus. That's an affront to him. They probably know that Jesus was born of Mary. They don't know it was a a virgin birth necessarily. They probably know that that Jesus was born of Mary and that she had become pregnant before Joseph and Mary had been wed. Maybe that's a... When a man says those things... So they're probably saying, you're the only one. Uh, You're the one who's an an illegitimate child. We're not born that way. We're the children of God. And what does Jesus say to them in response? If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not yet understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Then he says, radically, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. 
When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of it. And so Jesus is telling them here that their deepest problem in this slavery to sin finds its origin in their very nature. They bear the characteristics of their father, and their father is not God. Jesus says their father is the devil. I can't think of anything more brazen, more, more, more stark than, than Jesus could say something like that. They're seeking to kill him, brethren, and he responds in this way. And so there's a principle here, a principle that we all understand that behavior follows nature. Now, we say this in all kinds of proverbial ways. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? You may have said that. You may have heard that. Like father, like son. He's a chip off the old block. You're just like your mother, right? We say these things uh, when we see that a child bears resemblance to the parent, acts like the parent, has the same nature as the parent, the same personality or, or temperament or, or characteristics. And Jesus is doing the same thing here, and he's applying it on a spiritual level. He's telling them, you're doing what your father, the devil, does. Your behavior shows your nature. It shows that you are a child, not of God, but of the devil. And this shows, brethren, I believe, the deepest form of slavery that we could be in. It's not just a slavery to sin and death. It's very deeply rooted here, a slavery to the devil himself, held captive by this evil power that works upon our hearts and upon our lives. When we allow uh, influence, uh, when we allow our hearts to be influenced by the devil, yes, uh, he can bring us deeper and deeper into bondage and captivity. So yes, the enslavement of humanity there. Finally, I want to point out uh, something else that we might consider here uh, as a fourth point. Jesus came to free us from all of that And yes, from the guilt and the shame of sin as well. And so we're not just talking about uh, captivity and and penalty. We're talking about vitality here. Have you ever experienced the feeling of guilt? Have you ever done something for which you were ashamed or felt guilty about immediately after you, you did it or said it? Have you ever felt shame for things that you have done in your past? I don't want a video camera following me, uh, recording the events of my life, uh, and I'm sure you, you feel the same. Have you ever repented of those past deeds or sins, but felt like you needed to repent again because you feel so bad that you want to make sure God really forgave you? Have you ever felt like that? You know, we've all done things for which we are ashamed, things that we wish we could take back, honestly, in the moment that it occurred. We all have the capacity to relive our bad moments. We all have those memories questioning, why did we do that? However, when you do this, when I do this, all we're doing is we're creating this never-ending guilt and shame uh, for which we've already received forgiveness. And yes, this can cripple us. This can haunt us, taking away our capacity to live and to develop, uh, taking away our capacity to have joy in our Christian walk of life. And I think this is one of the biggest weapons that our enemy, Satan, uses. Encouraging us to look back. right? Just like Lot's wife, looking back. Looking back on something that had happened uh, so long ago. Encouraging us to dig through our memories, to go through the files of our mind, and look back at the shameful moments of our past. And so when we do that, we can be overwhelmed, of course, by guilt and shame and condemnation. And yes, this will ultimately strip our joy and rob our peace and destroy our vitality in Christ. 
How does the guilt or shame of past sins prevent your experiencing freedom, the freedom that we find in Christ? And so from cover to cover, God's word points to freedom. God doesn't leave us wondering how to grab hold of the freedom that he offers. It starts with acknowledging our brokenness and admitting that at one time, yes, we were slaves to sin. It ends with choosing Jesus and following him daily. Only he can break the bonds of slavery. Only he can lead us to true freedom now and forever. We read in Colossians chapter number 1, verses 21 through 23, that once we were alienated from God, once we were separated apart from God, we were not only separated, but we were enemies to God in our minds because of our evil behavior. But now, Paul assures us, he has reconciled us by Christ's body through death to present us holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Free. If you continue in faith, established and firm, Paul writes, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. It's only because of what Christ has done for us that we can be truly free. And because of what Christ has done, we can celebrate every day as our spiritual day of independence. Moreover, as Christians, we can look forward to an eternity of freedom. And so this freedom, though, was bought with a price. It has a cost. We know that millions upon millions of people have died over the years to secure and protect our liberties here in this country. And we honor them. We respect that. And likewise, brethren, spiritual freedom has a cost. It costs Jesus everything to secure our freedom. Without his suffering, without his death on the cross, there would be no freedom for us from the penalty of sin. If he hadn't died, hadn't risen again, and hadn't ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit would not have come. And without his righteousness being transferred to us through his death, burial, and resurrection, we wouldn't have the promise of freedom from the presence of sin in heaven one day. And so with a great cost comes this obligation. And we cannot expect to continue in freedom if we do not feel obliged to those who gave us that freedom. Read with me in the book of Romans chapter number 8 as we begin to close the message this morning. Romans the 8th chapter, verses 12 through 17. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. Here the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, brethren... We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify or put to death the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father." The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. So brethren, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature. Not to live according to that old life. We live according to that old sinful nature, we die. We understand that. But if we live through the Spirit, by the Spirit, uh, we put to death the misdeeds of the body, we live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons and daughters of God. 
Perhaps what happens for some of us is that we have been set free, but we still live like our former, former selves prior to becoming Christians. Maybe we still live in captivity in our minds. Maybe like the Israelites of old, we'd rather go back to Egypt. Maybe we have difficulty looking for the promised land and we want to turn back. Perhaps you are a Christian this morning, but you still allow sin to captivate you and enslave you. We can pray with you and we can pray for you. Or perhaps you are living outside of Christ. Maybe you thought you were free, but now you see the freedom that Jesus wants to give you. You want to lay hold on eternal life. We can help you this morning as well. I don't know the hearts and minds of those present. If there is one of either case, let your wishes be made known this morning. Someone will assist you. If you will come forward, have a seat on one of the front rows. Someone will assist you as we stand and sing.